0: So I'm just going to give you a brief recap of every of what we covered last week before you begin to discuss a little bit of the homework questions. So if you remember, last week we looked at Genesis 3, 14, and 15, and we were answering the question, who is the king of glory? And we learned, we learned a lot of things actually from that very short text. We learned that he will be a male descendant of Eve who will destroy the snake at personal cost to himself. And we teased out all that information by looking at those key words. We started with curse, enmity, and then we looked at offspring, and then bruise. And the lesson was entitled, A Snake in the Garden. And I drew your attention to two main ideas, two takeaways I wanted you to carry with you. So first, I want you to remember that you can draw a straight line from all the devastation and all the hardship in this world, all the way back to that snake in the garden. And then second, we notice that this in the enmity language, that this conflict between the woman and the snake and between her offspring and his offspring is going to be perpetuated. So the snake and his offspring will continue in this attempt to curse God's people, but always and forever with the same result they will receive a curse for their attempts while God's people will be blessed. And so we learned that in this conflict, it never pays to oppose God. Do not make yourself his enemy. Last week, I told you we'd start our story back up in Genesis 4. Remember, we just kind of left them hanging out there on the doorstep of the garden. So God had driven them out of paradise and into this new and barren landscape where their work of ruling and filling was now going to be very difficult. But at the very end of chapter 3, I want to draw your attention to two things. So just after God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, he did something noteworthy. And if you're just kind of reading through the Bible at a fast pace, you might miss it. But in the space of three verses, God plants two more little seedlings, right? We have a little seed garden. Well, he deposits two more little seedlings that by the very end of the story, these little seedlings are kind of going to grow into two towering trees. And I want you to see them. I'm not going to really comment them on, on them today, but I want you just to tuck them away for the future. One is the cherubim, and the other is the tree of life. So he places the cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from re-entering because he doesn't want them to get back into the garden where they might eat from the tree of life and live forever in their now broken condition. So just tuck those away, but don't be surprised if you see them again. Okay, the title of today's lesson is Heroes and Villains, and it begins, as I said, in Genesis 4, outside of paradise. This is east of Eden. And two main ideas and takeaways I'm just going to tell you right from the beginning. I want you to to write them down and remember them and listen for them. And the first one is that sin and conflict abound in this new landscape. Sin and conflict abound here. And we see this right out of the garden where these two warring lines emerge. The second is that in these texts today, God begins to reveal a comprehensive plan to redeem all of creation. He's not just going to crush the snake. He's going to reverse the whole curse, and he will restore Eden. And we begin to see that comprehensive plan unveiled in the text we studied for today. Okay, so last week I left off saying that Adam and Eve did not leave the garden without hope because they believed God's promise. And the reason I can confidently say that they believed God is because of what happened next. So what happened next? What happens right at the beginning of chapter 4 that shows Adam and Eve believed God? Yeah, Eve gives birth, and she gives the Lord praise for it. After Cain's birth, this is what she says. This is how the ESV translates it, and it truthfully makes me giggle. (laughs) She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. (laughs) She's talking about a baby, though, (laughs) so... The Lord has helped her give birth to a baby, and somewhere along the line we should note that we've actually dropped that um, general or the impersonal God here, and we find Eve using the Lord's personal name the name his covenant people use. So although Adam and Eve have been expelled from God's presence in the garden, she has not been cut off completely from him because here she is using the Lord's personal name and testifying that it is God. He's the one who has helped her give birth to this baby just as he promised she would do. Well, can you imagine the high hopes that Adam and Eve had for this baby boy? But, of course, their hopes were dashed. Cain and his brother Abel are the first reminder that this enmity between the woman and the offspring of the snake is the new reality. Chapter 4 in our Bible relates not just the first birth, but the first death, and death by murder, and brother on brother. Now, who else plotted murder in Genesis 3? We talked about this last week. Who plotted murder? Who tempted Adam and Eve to their death? The snake, the serpent, that's right. So what conclusion should we draw about Cain? He may, I'll tell you, he may have biologically descended from the woman, but spiritually, he is the offspring of the snake. He is a murderer, just like his father Well, besides being devastated over their loss, I imagine that Adam and Eve were in some measure just shocked to see that their offspring could so resemble the snake that the snake could claim him as his own. But that is the sad truth about life outside the garden. Human hearts are now as barren as the land. So just as thorns and weeds grow from the ground and they choke out the fruit-bearing plants— So thorns and weeds now grow from our hearts, and they choke out the fruit-bearing words of God. You see, God spoke to Cain. He had words for Cain, and that is significant. God himself warned Cain not to sin, but his words fell on barren grounds, and they did not bear any fruit. So right away, just at the doorstep of the garden, we see the illustration of a truth that is going to be made very clear in the New Testament. And we see that the distinguishing features between these warring offspring are not biological, but they are spiritual. And the snake's offspring are all those who reject God's words, and they rebel against them. But... The woman's offspring are those who believe God's words and obey them. Those kinds of people will be counted among God's people. They will be the heroes, as our lesson title says. And those whose hearts remain barren will be counted among the serpent's offspring, the villains. So Cain is our number one villain in the story. And Abel, even though his life is cut short, is the first in our line of heroes. And interestingly enough, he is a keeper of sheep. Did you catch that? So he is the first shepherd. So on your repeated words chart, you can include Genesis 4-2 as one of the references on page 86. There's a word family there that includes shepherd, sheep, and pasture. You can mark Genesis 4-2 In that box, we will definitely see those words again. So Abel's sacrifice, if you've read the account of Cain and Abel, you know that Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God while Cain's was not. Abel found favor with God. In fact, Jesus, when he comes, he will later call Abel a prophet. He's, he was the first prophet in a long line of prophets who were all persecuted or murdered by their own countrymen. And then the author of Hebrews will place Abel in the hall of faith, saying that even though he died, through his faith he still speaks, Abel... Is still bearing fruit. That's what heroes do. They continue to bear fruit even after they die with their legacy of faith. So even though Abel's life was cut short before he could have any children, he was still fruitful and he still is fruitful. And I think, you know, he's such a small figure in the Bible, but he is brought up several times in the New Testament. And I think that should be a comfort to all of us, that if we are God's people, we too can have an influence beyond our very short lives. And I think Abel is a particular comfort to married couples who struggle with infertility or to single women who would hope to have children that God still has really good work for you to do. He intends to make you fruitful, maybe not in the sense of having biological children, but your faith speaks. And like Abel, it will continue to speak. So in that way, you will mother many sons and daughters. So Abel, hero number one, the first offspring of the woman. Now, Cain does live to father children, and his last named descendant is Lamech, whose life choices really parallel that of his great-grandfather's. So he murders a man for a small offense. So you see the family resemblance, right? We have two murderers, just like their father, the, the snake. So Lamech is villain number two on your table. Well in time God blesses Eve with another baby boy and you again you can hear you can hear her hope in verse 25 of chapter 4 she says God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him There's that word offspring again did you catch it so you can include Genesis 4:25 on your chart Well, with these words, Eve is almost certainly continuing to look for the one offspring that will crush the snake. But we're not really told much about Seth, other than the fact that he is very fruitful. So he lived a long time, he had many sons and daughters, so you can just see this little garden, this little seed garden is exploding with fruitfulness now. In fact, the next chapters, chapters 4 through 11, are going to give us six genealogies And I know a lot of first-time Bible readers kind of just want to give up at this point, (laughs) the genealogy point, but they're actually very important. And I'll give you two reasons why. So first, they show that God's creation purposes are on track, right? He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and look what is happening, multiplication. Despite the enemy's efforts to derail this purpose of God's, image bearers are multiplying all over the earth. And then number two, these genealogies actually distinguish between the snake's offspring and the woman's. So or to capture the lesson title, these genealogies help us see who the villains are and who the heroes are. So Seth, back to Seth, he is fruitful. He is hero number two. And at the end of chapter five, we find our third hero. There were others of course, like Enoch who walked with God, but we're just hitting the highlights here. We can't say everything. So the third hero descending from Seth is Noah. And right away, we know this child is special. His father, Lamech, and this is a different Lamech. See, we're multiplying so much, we don't even have enough names to cover all the people. But this is a different Lamech. This is Noah's father, and he expresses hope that maybe Noah is the one to bring them relief from the curse on the ground. That's what he says in chapter 5, verse 29. And Lamech's words here are significant for a couple of reasons. So first, we see in his words, we we see hope in his words. And we recognize from them that God's people, or the offspring of the woman, because those are the same, God's people, offspring of the woman, We see that they are actively waiting and watching for God to keep his promise. But we also see the nature of their hope. They are looking for salvation from the curse on the ground. And they understand something. They understand that when the snake crusher comes, he will also give them relief from the curse on the ground. So they have connected these two things. And they are desperate. They are desperate for relief from their hardship. And aren't we all? But I think we should notice something else here. Lamech does the very human thing of wanting relief from all these symptoms without ever really curing the disease. So he's confused about the nature of the disease. He thinks his biggest problem is this horrible curse that he just toils under on a daily basis. He wants relief from the weeds growing in the ground, but isn't so much concerned with the weeds growing in his heart. And what's true of Lamech, Lamech is true universally. We all are sometimes guilty of confusing our smaller problems as our biggest problem. So your biggest problem is not the fact that you've lost your job and you have no income. And that is a a big problem. And it's a wretched symptom of a terminal disease. But that the disease is our heart's rebellion against God. That is what has caused all these symptoms. And until that disease is cured, these symptoms are just going to multiply and flourish with the people. But in Lamech's defense, we see that he does believe a snake destroyer is coming and that he will clear up the problem of the curse. And he's right. He believes God. He distinguishes himself as an offspring of the woman here. Now, Noah, Lamech's son, you know his story. I mean, it's so ubiquitous. Fisher-Price has a toy, Noah, and ark and animals. And, And like legends of a worldwide flood just exist in nearly every ancient culture. So I don't think anybody is unfamiliar with Noah's story. But what I want for you to see in the account of Noah is that with the multiplication of humanity came the multiplication of sin. So this rebellion against God, which started in the snake in the garden, is growing just as the people are growing. But Noah, number three, the number three hero on our charts, finds favor with God. God speaks to Noah. And Noah, what does he do? He's a hero, so he listens, he obeys. Uh, 2 Peter 2 5 actually calls Noah a preacher or uh, a herald of righteousness. So his life was a warning to everyone around him. And you know, he did not build that ark overnight. So the people had time to see and to question and to hear his warning and to repent. And so, what I want this is what I want you to remember, and we're going to see it over and over again in this study that what was true in the garden. What was true with Cain and what was true with Noah is true even now, that God never judges without warning. He has been and he always will be very clear about the consequences for sin. He warned Adam and Eve. He warned Cain. He sent Noah as a warning to the, all the people filling the earth, but they paid no attention to Noah And they were swept away in God's watery judgment. But Noah doesn't just represent judgment. He represents a brand new beginning. Could Noah be that promised son of Eve? Well, let's see. Chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth." Does that sound familiar? Hope you marked all those repeated words on your chart, because there's that word blessed again, and there's that commission to fill the earth. He said these same things to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. Well, he also told Adam and Eve to do something else. Do you remember what it was? Not just to be fruitful and multiply, he told them to rule. So he tells them to rule and have dominion over all the creatures. Well, in 9.2, this is what he says to Noah. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and on everything that creeps in the ground and the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. That sounds a lot like rule and dominion to me. So Noah's family is just handed the dominion that Adam and Eve were supposed to exercise. And God provides for Noah's food, just as he did for Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were told to eat all the fruit-bearing and seed-bearing plants of the garden. And now Noah and his family are permitted to eat all the creatures, even the creeping ones. <laughs> so it's a different diet, isn't it? And I think that that's probably our first clue, besides the fear, the animals fearing them, is a little bit different, too. So we have a couple clues in there that... This really isn't Eden. It's not quite right. Because, well, the people aren't quite right. And that point is really sadly illustrated just a few verses later. So in 920, we find Noah working the grounds, And that's good. He's supposed to work the grounds. He builds a vineyard. Look, he's being fruitful. Again, very good. But then he gets drunk, and that is not, not good and he gets naked, and that is shameful. Remember, now that Adam and Eve have sinned, they need to cover their bodies, and they actually need to cover their souls. Though they don't understand that quite yet. So Noah, he drinks from his fruitful vineyard. He passes out drunk and naked in his tent, and his youngest son, Ham, discovers him. And what Ham does next is shameful. He exposes his father's nakedness and sin. Maybe he laughs at it. Maybe he runs outside to tell his two brothers so they can laugh with him. But his two brothers do the honorable thing. They, without looking at their father, they just cover him with a blanket. So we thought maybe this could be an Eden reboot. It started that way with God's blessing and with his commissioning Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to rule. But it all ended very quickly, just like the garden did, right? With sin, with shame, and with a curse. So Noah pronounces a curse on Ham and his son Canaan for dishonoring him. So Ham is our number three villain, and his son Canaan is our number four villain. These two villains will go on to father many nations, And again, we see that with the multiplication of people comes the multiplication of the snake's offspring. So Noah didn't destroy the enemy. He is alive and well and by all appearances flourishing. His line continues to grow through Ham and Canaan. So where should we look for our hero? Chapter 11. Chapter 11 zeroes in on the line of Shem, Noah's son, Shem. So Noah had blessed Shem, and God blessed Shem. He gets the number four hero spot. So Shem is fruitful, and he fathers many sons and daughters, and he becomes the great, 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 I think that's right, grandfather of our next hero, number five, Abram, who I am just going to call him Abraham, even though that is not his name yet, (laughs) but I'm going to slip up if I keep trying to call him Abram. So just know that God will change Abram's name to Abraham. So if I say Abram or if I say Abraham, it's the same person. So, he is our hero number five. He's introduced at the end of chapter 11, where God gives some divine foreshadowing. He names Abram's wife, whose name right now is Sarai, but will be changed to Sarah. And he notes something very specific about her. What does he say? She is, she's barren. She is unfruitful. So, what is going to happen to our line of heroes now? Okay, that's the first 11 chapters of Genesis in a nutshell. Chapter 12 begins again with God's voice. He is speaking again. This time he is speaking directly to Abraham. And he tells him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And right away, we see a similar word to the one we saw in Genesis 3. Do you know what it is? it's that word land. So land should recall the curse on the ground. And you can mark Genesis 12.1 on your chart on page 83 under that word family of land, ground, and earth. So God tells Abram to move away from his family to a new place that God is going to show him, and in this place, God is going to, let's see what he's going to do in verse 2, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So in that sentence alone, just verse 2, we have three more keywords. We have nation, we have bless, we have name. We are going to see those repeated throughout the story. So if you didn't notice those, you can go back later and you can fill in Genesis 2, 12-2 for nation, bless, and name. Like Adam and Eve's blessing, okay, remember Adam and Eve's blessing in the garden and how foundational that was to our understanding of the Bible's storyline, okay, Abraham's blessing is equally foundational to our understanding of the Bible's story, so keep listening, because God's blessing on Abraham in this new barren landscape that we're in, it's going to look a little different, because now we have to account for enemies. Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about that when God blessed them, and Noah was starting completely over, so we didn't address the enemies. But now this is something we have to consider. So the rest of Abram's blessing goes like this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so in these three verses, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God is beginning to reveal something astounding, truly. We begin to understand that God has a much bigger plan in mind than just raising up one of Adam and Eve's sons to crush the snake. The promise opens our eyes a little bit, to a, a grand plan for restoring everything that was lost at the fall. Not just the broken ground, not just their broken hearts, but all of it together. God intends to reverse this snake effect. He is going to restore all that was lost in Eden. And he's going to do it by working through this man, Abraham. And we can discern all this by certain clues that at once take us all the way back to the garden and that push us forward into in time to a place where all the families of the earth are blessed. So we'll unpack that promise by noting these clues. We're going to look at the key words of country and father, land, nation, name, bless, dishonor, curse, families, and earth. It's pretty much every word in the whole. (laughs) Now that I look at it, that's almost every word. Okay, but let's start with country. So this word is parallel in a way with land. So God is asking Abram to leave one land to move to another land. He's asking Abram to leave his homeland and his countrymen, and he is to go to a land where he won't be the citizen of any country. But even more significantly, God is asking Abram to leave his father. And it, it's those two things, our nationalities, our parentage, that we use to really have our identities settled. They're, they're key to our personal sense of identity. And God is asking Abram to turn his back on those things and go to a new place because God is about to do something brand new, something nobody was expecting. Now, that word father, just, again, I, I always would tell my kids when they were little, just hold that one in your head. We're not going to talk about it right now. But we will return to this word. And this is the, really the first use uh, of that word in our study. But we, So you would want to include this in your chart, but we're not going to talk about father just yet. Okay, so God is asking Abram to leave all these things behind And go to a new place. He's going to do something brand new. And how did Abraham respond? Look at 12.4. What does he do? He goes. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He listens to God's word. So he's not like Cain. He is like the heroes before him. And he distinguishes distinguishes himself as the offspring of the woman and of one of God's people By his faith, he believes God, and he obeys him. So he goes. He goes to this land that God shows him. And it is a land that at that time very much belonged to a different set of people, cousins of his from generations past. He is going to the land of the cursed people of Ham and Canaan. And it is in this land where God will make Abram into a nation, a great nation a brand new nation, a new people group, and a new country. So we see God is starting a brand new line of people, still descended from the woman, but now very specifically descending from Abraham. So out of all the people that have filled the earth, God is directing our attention to this one man and to his descendants. So we now know to look for that snake destroyer in the descendants of Abraham. God then promises to bless Abram by making his name great. And we're gonna see that again too, but very simply, that is just to say Abram will be widely honored. And those who honor him, what will happen to those who honor him? They're gonna be blessed, that's right. And they will share Abraham's blessing, but what will happen to those who dishonor him? Yeah, they're going to be cursed. So we have already seen this principle at play, but here God is stating it very directly. A curse was the snake's reward for dishonoring Adam and Eve. A curse was Cain's reward for murdering his brother. A curse was Ham's reward for dishonoring his father. So now those who dishonor this man, Abram, and Abram's line will be cursed. And you should once again note that the enemy of God's people is the enemy of God. Those people will be cursed. Do not make God your enemy. But we always have a but because God is so very merciful. The curse is never the final word. Blessing is the final word. And look just how far abraham's blessing will extend in verse three how far does it extend to all the families of the earth okay we have a worldwide curse right now we have an earthwide blessing so we have this landscape where enemies abound where the offspring of the serpent are in every household but now we have an earthwide blessing, one that will extend to every family of the earth. And that means that God's people are in every nation, every tribe, every language group. A great family of people from every family of the earth will inherit Abraham's blessing. And that includes people from enemy countries. So even Canaan, and you know. It was interesting. Two nights ago, my family and I were reading Matthew 14, and the account we came to was the account of the faith of the Canaanite woman. She's the one who follows Jesus around saying, please heal my daughter. And in the end, he says, oh, oh woman, such great faith you have. Of course, I will grant your request. So even The Canaanites, the enemy of God's people, even a number of them will be accounted in God's family. So, quick recap. God calls Abram to leave his old family and to start a new one. He calls him to leave his country and to begin another because he wants to use Abram's family to fill this cursed earth with blessing. But we've got a couple problems. Two obstacles in our path. One we've talked about is the land. It's already occupied, and we'll see how that's resolved later. And two, Sarai is barren. So how can Abraham begin a new family if his wife can't have children? We'll flip over to Genesis 17. So much happens between Genesis 12 and 17. A lot happens, but I'll tell you one thing that does not happen. Sarah and Abraham do not have children. So Abraham acquires great wealth, but no children. He parts ways with his nephew Lot. He encounters Melchizedek. More time passes, no children. God speaks to Abram in a vision during this time, and he actually tells him of a delay. He says, you know, you won't become a great nation. Your people are going to be waylaid in Egypt under enemies for 400 years before you can go to the land where I will give them their inheritance and make them a great nation. Okay, he gets this vision, but no children. Sarah then hatches this ill-conceived plan to finally get Abram that offspring. Ishmael is born, and from within their own household, Abraham and Sarah raise up an enemy nation. And then 18 more years pass before God finally appears to Abraham again at the beginning of chapter 17. So what do you notice here? Over and over and over, God delays. He delays. Why isn't he keeping his promise? Well, these chapters are a preview and an illustration of what the New Testament will make very clear We are not to mistake God's apparent slowness with unfaithfulness, because he often delays so that he can warn sinners about coming judgment and give them time to repent. So in your homework, you answered the question, why God might give Abram's nation the land that belonged to another people, the Canaanites? And the answer, on the surface, the answer is, these were wicked people who rejected God Cursed his people, so they, they're going to be judged. And, and that is true. But even still, God waited and waited. He sent Israel to Egypt for 400 years, waiting on the Canaanites. Why? To give them time to repent and to save some of them. And we've already seen just 17 chapters into the story that God always warns before he judges. He is a good God, he is fair. And just so, why does he delay to warn and to give people a chance to hear his words and to respond in faith? Now we know from the, the biblical account the large majority of the Canaanites, even after four hundred years, persisted in their rebellion and their wickedness, and they experienced God's judgment. But remember what I said earlier, okay? God's people are made up of those from every family on earth. And we know of at least one Canaanite woman who was a part of the blessed people of God. And there will be more. So why does God delay? Second 2 Peter 2.9 makes all our deductions from the Old Testament very plain. He delays because he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All right, let's turn our attention back to this, to Genesis 17, where we get an expanded understanding of the blessing of Genesis 12. It's here that God makes it more clear that he intends to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 and restore Eden. And our clues come with those words multiply and fruitful, offspring, land, everlasting possession, God, and then we're going to throw kings in there at the end. Okay, so those words multiply, you see that in verse 2, and fruitful, that's in verse 6. This is all in chapter 17. And you recognize these, right? You've seen them a lot already. So they immediately form a bridge back to Abraham's blessing, and then back to Noah's blessing, and back to Adam and Eve's blessing. But we know that something else was multiplying, of course, um, not just the people. Um, sorry, change of change of direction here. Something else that was multiplied back in the garden was Eve's. Remember, what was the punishment on Eve? Her what would be multiplied? Her pain in. Okay, yes. So God multiplied Eve's pain and childbearing in three sixteen, so that being fruitful was going to be very difficult. And it has been for them. It has been very difficult for Abram and Sarai because she suffers under the weight of infertility. But in Genesis 17, God blesses both Abraham and Sarah with the promise of offspring. And that word offspring, we've seen this many times, and it drives us right back to Genesis 3. Well, Sarah's old age and infertility were a grief to her and to Abraham, and it threatened to derail God's promise, his plan. But knowing what you know about God, do you think he is going to be put off by something like infertility or old age? Okay, you know, we can't roll back the clock. And sadly, couples who struggle with infertility often spend thousands of dollars and inject all kinds of chemicals and spend time in labs and invasive procedures, and still, infertility is a problem. But what people struggle to overcome, God overcomes with the Word. Look at verse 21. This is the first of many reversals of the curse. God says, At this time next year, Sarah... Shall bear to you a son. So, old age, infertility, not a problem for God. He promised them a baby boy. And remember, a baby boy is exactly what we're all looking for, right? After the promise of Genesis 3. With the reversal of Eve's punishment, God ensured that the line of the woman continues to be fruitful. So that it will yield that snake destroyer. But how will that snake destroyer crush the snake? How's he going to do it? How is he going to redeem all of creation? Well, we get a hint for that answer in verse 8. Look at that. Where God says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So God here he is he's going to remake Eden. Do you see that? okay he's making a new home this is a new land it's a new home he's filling it with new people and in this new home God will be with them. He will be their God like he was the he was with Adam and Eve in the garden he will be with his people in this land this is a reversal of what happened in the garden. And we should note, God intends this restoration to be an everlasting arrangement. Okay? This is their everlasting possession. That's what the verse says. God with his people forever. You know, in this blessing on Abraham, we can see God's heart. He has a heart to redeem all Everything that was lost in creation, the land, the people, the relationship that he has with his image bearers. And now we get a glimpse of how he's going to do it. He's going to work through Abraham and through Abraham's nation to bring about this reversal. Okay, now there's that one other word repeated in verses 6 and 16. And it's the first use of a word we're going to see a lot now from here on out. What is it? It's on your handout. It's kings. I think it's our first subtle nod to what is coming. Adam and Eve were told to what? They were supposed to fill and rule. That's right. Adam and Eve were told to fill and rule. And then Noah, remember God just handed him dominion over all the creatures. And now kings will descend from this marriage of Abraham and Sarah. And maybe the baby boy we're expecting will be a king. That's what we should begin to look for from this text. But for now, what we know with certainty from these texts is that Abraham's blessing, it narrows down the lineage of the snake destroyer. So people have multiplied all over the earth, and it's almost impossible to distinguish between the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. So where should we look for him? Well, he tells us. It's not Cain, it's Seth. It's not Ham, it's Shem. And it's not Shem, it's not just any son of Shem's, it's Abraham. Look for him in Abraham's descendants. Worldwide blessing. This return of even Eden is going to come through this old man and his old barren wife. Okay, so how did you do on filling out your clue charts? Do you want a little help? Yeah. <laughs> okay, turn to page, what page is that? 89. Okay, so in that first column, the who column, we're just kind of looking for biographical information. So what do we learn about the snake crusher or the king of glory from Genesis 12 and Genesis 17? What, what biographical information do we get? We, he, who will he descend from? That's right. He'll be a descendant of Abraham. He'll be a citizen of Abraham's great nation. We, we know that from Genesis 12 and 17. Now, what? The what column. Here we're looking for new titles he'll wear, uh, things he'll do, the roles, job descriptions. What's he going to do when he comes, according to Genesis 12 and 17? okay father of many nations what was that yeah sure he's there there is that hint there he's potentially going to be a king but what's he going to do for all the families of the earth yeah he's going to bless all the families of the earth that is his that's the what that's his job when he comes and then the why column or the outcome what will be the outcome of this and look specifically in chapter 17 verse 8. Yeah, there. Yes, that's a good way to say it. He's going to he's going to reverse the curse and he's going to restore Eden forever. This that is everlasting. It's going he's going to fix everything and restore it and make it all right again. Okay, before we move into discussion time, I just want to reflect on those two main ideas I told you to listen for at the beginning of the lesson. And the first reflection here, so remember I, I said that sin and, and sin and conflict abounds in this new landscape. So the reflection on that is this. Don't, as Peter will write in one of his letters, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you. We should expect enemies and conflict. This is the landscape of our sojournings, just like Abraham. We should see it, we will see conflict on every side. The snake and his offspring will always try to curse God's people. But remember, the result will always be the same. Those who curse God's people will receive a curse in return, while God's people will be blessed. So don't be surprised when the world hates you for your faith and for your obedience to God. And don't be surprised if the conflict indeed gets fiery it is actually a sign that you are the people of God. And something else to remember here, God will accomplish his grand plan, and he is going to do it through the opposition, not in spite of the enemies, but through the enemies. He will actually use their opposition to accomplish his grand plan. So all of God and his enemies, all these people who are Innervated by that snake in the garden, they will unwittingly help God accomplish his purposes. But don't be surprised by any of this. But remember that two things are true here. Two things can be true at one time. God has enemies that he will curse and they will hate us. But among those enemies are also many of God's people people he wants to redeem from his enemies. So we need to be praying. We recognize God will triumph over his enemies, but we need to be praying for people who are still counted as his enemies, that they will hear God's words and respond in faith. So pray for their repentance and be patient and wait like God is patient. And then two... Don't let suffering under the curse derail your faith. So instead, we we should look at all this devastation and suffering around us and all the brokenness in our own hearts and let it stir up in us a longing for our true home. Don't let yourself get satisfied here. This is the land of your sojournings. We are like Abraham. This is not our nation. This is not where our citizen, citizenship is. It's not our home. And we are waiting just like he was waiting for the renewal of Eden. So that curse that we all hate, it is a daily reminder to long and hope for our true home where we will be with God forever in a world untouched by the snake Or the curse. Let me close in prayer and then you can move into your discussion times. Oh God, we are so grateful that you are patient. We're thankful that you speak and that you, for many of us, we have heard your words and you have granted us the faith to believe and to obey them. But if there are some among us today who still doubt and who resist your words. I pray that you would kindly lead them to repentance and make them your people. Thank you for this promise of worldwide blessing. We are so eager for that to take place, but I pray that you would give us patience as we continue to labor under this curse in the world to be faithful and to not to doubt you and to keep listening for your words and obey them. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who makes it possible. Amen.